We're on lesson number ooh, nine, right? Lesson number nine, our one lawgiver and judge from the quarterly adult teachers or adult Sabbath school Bible study guide. Uh, this is the last, the last quarter's study guide for 2014. And uh, we'll be looking here and, and reviewing the lesson, one lawgiver and judge. And if you have your Bibles, you want to turn to James chapter four, because that's where we'll be. And as you know, we'll be all over the scriptures elsewhere as well, but just keep your finger right there, James chapter four, and uh, we'll be uh, we'll be spending some time there today. Now, you know that um, arrogance, and really this is a, a, a continuation of last week's lesson, arrogance stunts a person's potential. It was Leo Tolstoy who said, an arrogant person considers himself to be perfect. This is the chief harm of arrogance. It interferes with a person's main task in life. And what's that? To become, he says, a better person. So it stunts a person's potential. You know, we've all probably had those moments where we've looked confidently at someone and we've said, hey, watch this, as if to say, I'm the best or I'm the greatest or I could do it better than the person who just did that very thing that you witnessed. And of course, that attitude sometimes causes us to land flat on our face, doesn't it? Sure. Spiritual arrogance, spiritual arrogance is the greatest hindrance to advancement in our walk with the Lord, to character development, to becoming more like Jesus. And really what we're talking about in this week's lesson is that very issue. I know the title of the lesson is One Lawgiver and Judge, but this, it's all very much tied in together. The, the real issue here is that James is dealing with is spiritual arrogance in the church. So what is arrogance? Well, the dictionary defines it as having or revealing an exaggerated sense of one own, one's own importance or abilities. And um, synonyms include self-importance, being egotistical. Here's an interesting word, overweening, overweening. That's a synonym. Uh, or just simply being big for your own boots or britches, whichever one you prefer to use. Uh, so this is what arrogance is. You know, I've, I've skipped over something here this morning. I, for, especially for our viewers who are tuning in, we, we need to let folk know that behind us is not our usual setup. We have communion here today at Sacramento Central. And so that's why you're seeing the white table with the, with the table with the white tablecloth. Uh, we just want to let you know that this isn't, uh, we're not doing renovations or anything like that. Uh, but here it is. Uh, we're doing, it's a beautiful day to do communion, isn't it? How wonderful. So we're talking about arrogance, spiritual arrogance. And uh, we can talk about being conceited, and that's, that's arrogance as well. And this was evidently the problem at the time of James when he was writing to the Christian church. And so he addresses this issue in this letter, in this particular chapter, in chapter 3, of course, and again here in chapter 4. It was spiritual pride that led some of the believers to show off their good works and to putting others down. And this, according to what we studied um, last week, created strife and division among the believers. And certainly it always does, doesn't it? Uh, pushing one's self-agenda, self-interest, pushing a person forward, uh, your own self forward to the detriment of others, always creates division 
and strife among the believers. And so this is a very important issue that I don't think James is long-winded on. And if he's not, then we can't be long-winded on it either. We're going to deal with it again here today. So let's look at James. We're in James chapter 4 and verse 11. I just kind of gave us a preamble to um, build up to what we're studying here uh, today based on what we've studied uh, the last week or two about, uh, uh, about arrogance and, and pride and this not being seen, not being evidenced in the church, although in James' day it was and even today it is seen. James chapter 4, verse 11. Let's read this and we'll, uh, let, as a matter of fact, let me read through to verse 17 to catch the entire context of our study here. Uh, we'll read, starting with verse 11, we'll read right through to verse 17. It says, Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He that speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. <clears throat> but if you judge the law, you, if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge one another? Verse 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good, and does it not to him, it is sin. So we're over on Sunday's lesson here. We'll start with Sunday's lesson, interestingly, interestingly enough. Judgment or discernment. And let's read verse 11 again as we, uh, as we tackle this particular day's subject. James 4, verse 11, James admonishes the brethren, do not speak evil of one another. And, you know, he's coming, basically, he's coming full circle, isn't he? If you go back to chapter 3, what's he talking about? He's talking about how, how to tame the tongue and how the tongue is an unruly member and, uh, and it creates, can create a lot of problems if it's uncontrolled. And uh, then he talks in verse 13 of chapter 3 about this worldly wisdom and how it uh, promotes self and slanders others. And then he calls for the believer to humble him or herself before God, and he will lift you up. So he comes full circle, summarizes in verse 11, after all that I've said, do not speak evil one of another brethren, or of one another brethren. He, he who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a what? A judge. So James has come full circle. A lack of humility before God inevitably leads to a similar lack of respect and humility before men. And so James admonishes stop speaking evil. Or we could simply put it another way stop backbiting. Stop backbiting. Stop slandering. Stop the libel. Stop the defamation. That's what he's really encouraging here. Stop that at once. Someone once asked the person who gave him verbal abuse whether after handing a person a gift and the individual declined the gift to whom the gift would belong. And the individual who slandered, defamed this particular individual said, well, the one to whom offered the gift, the one who gave the gift is the one who still owns the gift if it's, re if it's refused or if it's rejected. 
The abused individual replied, well, I decline to accept your abuse and request you to keep it to yourself. And certainly that's a, uh, a good way to handle any type of uh, verbal uh, abuse you might receive. Folk can just keep that to themselves. You don't have to receive that gift. Someone can keep it to themselves. Harsh criticism. And this is really what we're talking about here too. Harsh criticism of a person reveals self-interest and self-interest creates dissension and, and uh, division in the church. Remember James said, see how a great forest a little fire kindles. And that's over there in James chapter 3 and verse 5. Just a, a little fire, a little fire started in a great forest can have, has potential to level a forest very, very quickly. Think El Dorado National Forest right here in Northern California, 71,000 acres burned in short order. And it started with, uh, with a flick of a match, you see, strike of a match. James calls this wisdom, he calls this type of wisdom, do you remember what he calls it in, in chapter 3? He calls it devilish. He calls it, he calls it worldly, he calls it sensual, and he calls it devilish. Why is that type of worldly wisdom considered devilish? Well, because in devilish, because in Lucifer's attempt to promote himself, what did he do? He slandered God's good name. He just sought to destroy God's reputation and his character. And the devil, of course, is the father of defamation and the father of lies. And so that's why James calls this type of worldly wisdom devilish, that wisdom that pushes a person into the forefront, that causes dissension and division, and that slanders and defames others. It's devilish because it's of the devil, just point blank and very simple. All right, so here James says, okay, don't, don't do it, don't, uh, don't speak evil one of another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother, what does he do? Ends up doing what? Judges. Ends up judging his brother and speaks evil of the law and judges the law. Let's just talk a little bit here about judging the brother for just a quick moment. This judging uh, is associated with critical fault-finding whose purpose is to injure the individual to whom that fault-finding fault is directed. Its purpose is to fault-find and injure. And Jesus talked about this type of fault-finding, didn't He? In Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, in the, in the Great Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, "'Judge not that you be not judged.'" And then he talked about the, uh, the man who's, got a, who's doing the judging, who's got a beam in his own eye, who's trying to deal with and take out the speck in his brothers. It's very interesting. So Jesus and, and James are suggesting here and, and, and commanding that we don't judge one another in the sense of, of, of fault-finding critically to injure somebody. We have no right to judge another person. And the, what, what we have no right to judge is another person's character, neither that person's reputation, uh, motives rather, we have no right to judge a person's motives or their character. We have no right to do that. Plus, we don't do a very good job if we try, isn't that right? I shared this story during prayer meeting. There was a, a bishop by the name of Bishop Potter, and this was back in the 18, 19th century, late 18th century. He was on a, a great transatlantic ocean liner traveling to Europe, and when he went on board, he found that another passenger was going to share his cabin with him. 
After going to see the accommodation, he came up to the purser's desk and inquired if he could leave his gold uh, watch and some of his other valuables with the purser uh, behind, the deck, uh, behind the table there, the desk there, uh, to keep his valuables safe and sound. And he explained to the, port, the purser that uh, he doesn't ordinarily do this or avail himself of uh, the privilege, but he had just met the man in whom he was going to be sharing his cabin with. And judging from appearances, he was afraid that he might not be a trustworthy person. Well, the purser accepted the responsibility for the valuables and he remarked, it's all right, Bishop, I'll be very glad to take care of them for you. The other man has been up here and has left his goods for the very same reason. We don't do a very good job when we seek to judge a person's character, uh, especially their, their motives. And so, we're admonished here in James chapter 4 not to judge our brother. If we speak evil of our brother, we're setting ourselves up over and on top of that individual. We've set up our own standard and we're judging that person by our own standard. And if we do that, according to uh, James chapter 4 and verse 11, we end up judging or we speak evil of the law and we end up judging the law. What does it mean to, if we speak evil of someone, judge someone fault find, be critical towards somebody. What does it mean that we have spoken evil against the law and we uh, end up judging the law? Well, simply, it simply means that the law doesn't apply to the person in this particular case. He thinks, she thinks that, it's, that she or he are above the, that law, you see. In essence, he's saying that there's no law to protect the accused brother and that no law condemns his spirit or his actions toward that person. We could say that this person thinks that they are above the law. They're above the law. And this spirit uh, pervades our modern society, doesn't it? Uh, we could talk about those who enforce law and how some think that they, if they do that, they are above the law. Uh, we could talk about uh, some government officials or even celebrities who have gotten away uh, with what the average citizen wouldn't be able to get away with in society today. And that spirit in society sometimes even applies to the church. Some folk think that they are above the law of God. The law of God invites us, in summary, the last six commandments invite us to do what? To love our neighbor as ourselves. And if we're being critical towards someone or fault-finding or being harsh towards someone without, I mean, there being no love or grace or mercy toward that person, then what are we doing with the law? We're violating the law. We're breaking the law and we're setting ourselves up as someone who is above that law, you see. It's very interesting. In the book, Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings, page 125, 126, notice these, uh, these interesting thoughts. Uh, Ellen White suggests that Christ is the true standard of character. That's true, isn't it? Christ is the true standard of character, and he who sets himself up as a standard for others is putting himself in the place of Christ. Isn't that interesting? And since the Father has committed all judgment unto the Son, and we're going to look at that verse here shortly, whoever presumes, I'm still quoting, whoever presumes to judge the motives of others is again usurping the prerogatives of the Son of God. These would-be judges, she says, and critics are placing themselves on the side of anti-Christ. End quote. And then she goes on actually to quote 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, verses 2 through 4, that talks about the Son of, the man of sin the son of perdition, who exalts himself above God and everything that is called God. 
She suggests that we, when we judge another person, when we look down on that person, they haven't measured up to our standard, our expectations, we have then placed ourselves in the place of judge. And we've placed ourselves in the position that Christ uh, assumes and that that position belongs solely to Christ. And in that case, we have then participated in the spirit of the Antichrist. Very strong, isn't it? Very strong words. It's no wonder that John, in his little letter, uh, a couple of times said, there are many Antichrists gone out into the world. There are a lot of folk, even in the church, that look down and condemn others, and they do so because they set up their own standard, their own expectations, and others need to meet those expectations. And if they don't, then they haven't measured up. They're not doing what they ought to do, you see. So the judging that is condemned here, that James is condemning, deals with motives and character, but he's not dealing with discernment, judging, uh, judging that discerns between what is right and wrong. That's, those are two different things entirely. Um, we are called to not judge, to fault find another person, but we are called to judge in the sense that we can determine and discern between what is right and what is wrong. We have several verses we want to look at here. Someone has John chapter 7 verse 24 this morning. John chapter 7 verse 24, we'll come to you in just a few moments. John 7 verse 24. Uh, First, let me share these few verses with us. Uh, Acts chapter 17 and verse 11. Notice what the Bible says. Uh, Talking about those in Thessalonica, it says that they were more fair-minded, or as the King James puts it, more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that, sorry, they're not talking about those in Thessalonica, it's talking about the Bereans. The Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. So, we're encouraged in this verse to judge, we can use another word, discern, between what is truth and what is error, correct? We've been encouraged to determine that. If we, uh, Jesus said, look, uh, in Matthew 24, He said, look, take heed that no one deceive you. If we're not able to distinguish between what is right and what is wrong, then uh, we're in big trouble. And we'll just be led astray and uh, follow the crowd and be lost forever. Um, but no, we've called, we're called to be able to judge between what is right and what is wrong, to discern between what is right and wrong. Second Corinthians 13 and verse 5, Paul says, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know, uh, do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified? And so we're also to discern or judge how we're doing. Uh, we're to examine ourselves. Where, how are we doing? Are we growing? Uh, have we surrendered that, that, that pet thing to the Lord? Are we improving in our walk with the Lord? Are we growing? We're to examine ourselves. We're to assess our own spiritual growth. That's okay to do too. Then in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, Paul admonishes, he says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in a trespass, now let me ask you a question. If you cannot discern between what is right and wrong, how are you going to know that someone's been overtaken in a trespass? You're not going to be able to, are you? You are able to know when someone has done something wrong. Again, uh, the, the, the condemnation in, in, in James, well, the way James, what James is referring to is judging someone's motive or character. He's not referring to being able to distinguish, distinguish between what is right and what is wrong. So he goes on to say, Galatians 6, 1, brethren, if a man is overtaken you in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of what? Gentleness, considering yourselves, lest also you be tempted. So 
uh, we can judge between what is right and wrong in order to help somebody. Now, notice what Jesus said in John chapter 7 and verse 24. Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Thank you very much. So, what was Jesus, Jesus, is Jesus saying don't judge? (laughs) I don't want to confuse anyone here today. Jesus is saying don't judge another man's motives or character, but in this verse, what is He saying? You can judge, but judge righteous judgment. What does that mean? Judge righteous judgment. Jesus put it another way in Matthew 7, by their fruits, you will know them. You can distinguish between uh, what is right behavior and wrong behavior. The problem comes when we start uh, determining a person's eternal destiny and, uh, and, and, and suggesting they're going to be either going to heaven or being cast into the lake of fire. That's God's business. That's what God does. Uh, he judges the motives. He judges the character. But we are called to be able to distinguish between what is right and wrong. So don't, don't fall for the, the old, hey, don't be judging me. You're, you're being judgmental business. Now, now, maybe you might be being judgmental at that moment. And so you ought to heed that counsel. But, um, but you probably had it said to you as well, you know, when you talk that way and you talk about certain lifestyles, aren't you being judgmental, critical, judgmental? And it's interesting that the one who is saying don't be judgmental is actually judging you for being judgmental. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, uh, we are called to be able to determine between right and wrong behavior. Our society tells us don't judge, period. Don't judge. You don't know what's right or wrong. But the Scriptures declare and reveal to us what is right and what is wrong, and we're able to determine what that is and then align our lives by the grace of God with that which is right. So don't be fooling for those, you know, being judgmental because um, the person who's suggesting that's being judgmental themselves, I guess. All right, so let's jump over to Monday's lesson. Let's continue the thought here in James chapter 4, verse 12. James chapter 4 and verse 12. So if we speak evil of a brother, we set ourselves up as judges. We, we participate in the spirit of Antichrist. Now look at verse 12. There is one lawgiver and the context Uh, In the context, we could include the word judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? (laughs) It's a good question. In other words, who do you think you are? Who do we think we are to judge someone when God is judge of all? That's His prerogative, not ours. Whereas we can be unkind and mean in our assessment of others, God's judgment, however, is based on perfect righteousness, perfect justice, and fairness. Uh, A couple of verses we're going to read here. Someone has John chapter 5, verse 26, 27, sorry, 22, 26, and 27. Who's got that one? John 5, 22, 26, and 27. Thanks. Daniela, we'll get over to you in just a moment. But uh, I want to look at a few verses here with you first. Isaiah chapter 33 and verse 22. Isaiah says, for the Lord is our judge. Did I say Isaiah? I apologize, Isaiah, there it is. The, the, Lord, the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, and what will He do? He will save us. So here are some titles that, that Isaiah, there it is, Isaiah gives us regarding God. He's our king, He's our lawgiver, and He's also our judge, but He's also our what? Savior. He's also our Savior. These three titles that are given to God that normally strike fear 
into the heart of humanity. And, and, and if you're outside of the grace of God and you're rejecting the Lord, yes, these should strike some fear into you. But these three titles that normally strike fear into the heart of humanity are actually used by Isaiah to reveal God's desire to save us. He is king, he is judge, and he is the lawgiver in order to do what? Save us. So is that bad news or is that good news? That's good news. Again, if you're on the side of Christ and if you're on the side of the lawgiver and the judge, that's great news. These titles are given to the creator, to the king, to the lawgiver. These titles are given to God to explain to us that he wants to save us. And the, the Bible says in James chapter 4 and verse 12, there is one lawgiver, one judge who is able to save and to do what? And to destroy. God does destroy. Destruction, however, comes to those who choose it. Uh, God, the Bible says it's his strange work. It's his strange act that he would destroy. Um, God is not willing that any should perish, what Peter tells us, that, but that all should come to what? Repentance. Isaiah says it's his strange act, it's his strange work. But there will be a destruction that occurs at the end of the thousand years, a lake of fire. And is, God see, is God's hatred towards people or is it towards sin? It's towards sin. God has done everything possible to remove and extract sin from a person's life. He sent His Son to live, to die, who's up there right now interceding for us, who's promised to come back for us. He's done everything possible to save us, to get sin out of our life. But if anyone refuses and wants to just hold on to that sin, they'll be implicated in the lake of fire because the lake of fire purifies the universe of the record of sin. Of the, of the thing that has created pain and death and sorrow and suffering. A friend uh, had posted on her Facebook page something she'd learnt at the Adventist Theological Seminary. The teacher was Jiri Muscala, and he said, God only destroys things that have no future. And certainly sin has no future, isn't that right? There's no doubt about that. It's hard to get around the fact that God does destroy there are people, even in Adventism today, that are suggesting that uh, God doesn't destroy. It's uh, by default that people are just kind of there when the fire comes down from heaven, and it's not Him initiating that. It's just what happens. And it's hard to get around the plain testimony of Scripture that God does draw a line in the sand, and He says enough is enough, not in anger toward people, but enough is enough. Sin has run its course. It's done. Everyone has decided for will or for woe. It's over. And, uh, and, then, it's, and then it's done. And so uh, it is very difficult to get around the notion that God does not destroy. He does. He does. He's, he's the restorer. He's the creator. But he, sin is going to be destroyed. And the gospel provides provision, makes provision for people to be freed from sin so that we can live with Him forever. So as lawgiver, as lawgiver, because God is not only judge, but He's also the lawgiver, the lawgiver is the best qualified to explain the meaning of the law and judge whether or not His law, uh, His law has been broken. And the law is the standard in the judgment, is it not? James chapter 2 and verse 12. So speak ye and so, so do ye as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. The great standard in the judgment is the law of God, and it's uh, God who is the lawgiver, the judge. He's in the best position to judge whether or not His law has been broken or not. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 3 and 4, notice this about how God judges. His delight, talking about 
talking about the Son of God, his delight is in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, which is kind of how we judge. We judge by appearance, by the way someone sounds. No, 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 Jesus doesn't judge that way. Christ doesn't judge that way. But with righteousness will he judge the poor and decide with equity or fairness for the meek of the earth. In other words, God judges fairly and God is just in all his handlings, you see. Now, John chapter 5, verse 22, 26 and 27. Who had that? It's over here. Okay, Danielle, thanks. John 5, 22, 26 and 27. For the Father judges no man, but has committed all judgment unto the Son. For as the Father has life in himself, so has he given to the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Okay, thank you. Now, interestingly, in these verses... um, in these verses, in verse 24, uh, Jesus says that a believer won't come into judgment. And uh, Mike has a question on that. We're going to come to that in just a little bit. But I just want to make sure we get the camera set up. Mike has a question on that. We're going to get to that in just a moment. But look at these verses here. John 5, 22, 26, and 27. The Father judges no one, but He's committed judgment to who? The Son. He's committed judgment to the Son. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He's granted the Son to have life in Himself and has given Him authority to execute execute judgment also. Why? Because He is the Son of God. Is that what it says? Oh, because He is the Son of Man. Hmm, This is interesting. This is very, very interesting. Why did He not say He's committed all judgment to the Son of God? Because surely Christ is the Son of God, is He not? But he's also the son of man. He's also the son of man. He said he was, he refers to Christ as the son of man with reference to the judgment because the son of man is one who understands us and he knows what it means to be tempted. He knows what it means to walk in our shoes. And that's not to suggest that he's gone places we've gone and that that he's sinned because Christ overcame fully and completely, the plan of salvation would fall flat on its face if Jesus uh, sinned and, and succumbed to the temptations of the devil, would have. But he was victorious then and forever, amen? Certainly. But Jesus understands us. He knows what it means to be tempted. He knows what it means to, uh, to suffer, to, be, to feel tired, to, to feel the, 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 the pullings of, of frustration, and those types of things. He understands us. He knows what it means to be human. And it is He that will be our judge. Now, that's pretty good news. If you're going to stand before a judge, you want to stand before someone who kind of understands a little bit about what you've gone through. Now, this isn't to suggest that that the judge is going to excuse sin. He's not going to do that. He's not going to do that. But you've got to know that the judgment is set up and that uh, everything is in place, not so that God can keep as many people out of heaven as possible, but it's set up so that He can get as many people into heaven as possible. Now, if God, if God was judge, and certainly through Christ He is, but if he, if he was judge, technically speaking, what does the Bible say of God the Father? 
for God so loved the world. So this thing is actually stacked in our favor. It's stacked in our favor. This is very good news. The one who knows us, the one who understands what it means to be tempted is the one who judges us. And according to 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, he is also our defense attorney. He's also our defense attorney. So not only is Christ our judge, the one who knows what it means to be tempted, but he's also the one who defends us in the judgment. See, God is not against us. God is for us. Mike, you've got a question for us. Please ask your question. Yes. It says in John 5, 24, that uh, the believer won't come into judgment. If that is the case, why do I need to stand before God in judgment? And what's the point of investigative judgment? All right, so this is a, a question that has been asked by a number of people, even within, even within Seventh-day Adventism. John 5, 24 says that uh, if you believe on Christ, you've passed from judgment, you've gone from death to life. And so what's why would I need to stand before God uh, in judgment? What is the point of the investigative judgment, the pre-advent judgment? If I'm saved, judge saved in Christ, what's the purpose? Well, first of all, in, if you've got the King James Version, your version says, not judgment, but it says what? Condemnation, and that's a better rendering. So, we, we, if we are in Christ, according to Romans 8 verse 1, we have passed from being under condemnation, we are now living in the Spirit, and we've been justified by God's grace. And so, uh, and so, yes, if we believe on Jesus, we're passed from condemnation. But the Bible is very clear, Romans 14, 11, that all shall appear before the judgment seat of Christ. There is no escaping that. First uh, Peter 4, verse 17, judgment begins where, friends? With the house of God. The pre-advent judgment is actually a judgment that is determining that is, that, is, that is looking at the record books of those who've ever professed Christ's name. And, uh, and the judgment is in gear not to undermine the basis for which we determine our salvation, which is faith in the grace of Christ, but to determine whether a person has truly appropriated that grace to their life, whether a person truly believes. John 3.16, whosoever believes shall receive everlasting life. So who really believes? You know, the devil, what James told us earlier, the devil believes and he trembles, doesn't he? So there, is, there are different types of belief. You can profess that you, you, you are following Jesus. You can say you're a Christian. And James has, has challenged us this quarter as we've been studying his book that it doesn't matter what you say, it matters what you do. And so the judgment reveals who truly believes on Jesus. And he will vindicate and exalt those who have made a surrender to Christ on a daily basis, who trust in Jesus' saving grace and that uh, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. So I hope that clears up a question here for us. I mean, that, that, that deserves, deserves more time, but for time's sake, we must move on. Tuesday, we're at Tuesday's lesson. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 1, if you'd like to turn there with me. Proverbs chapter 27 and verse 1. The wise man said something wise, with relation to planning ahead and the future. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 1, and this is really in relation to our text here in James chapter 4, verse 13, which we'll read in just a moment. But Proverbs chapter 27, and verse 1, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. 
The admonition is to not do what? Boast. Don't boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. The wise man, of course, isn't advising us to be careless regarding the future, and, and neither does Jesus' teaching regarding anxious thought. You know, you've probably heard folks suggest Jesus said, and of course Jesus said, take no thought for tomorrow, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Some people take that to mean that we don't need to plan for the future. That's not what Jesus is saying, and that's not what the wise man is saying. He's not advising us to be careless regarding the future, uh, but uh, is advising us, oh, by the way, it was the same wise man that advised us to go to the ant, right? And what does the ant do? Gathers food for the summer, prepares for the winter, so it plans for the future. I don't know how it all registers in that little puny mind, but it does. So the same wise man who said, don't boast about tomorrow is the same one who said, go to the ant who does plan. Instead, what the wise man is saying, what he's warning against is self-trust and self-assurance outside of God's leading, God leading our life. Look at James chapter 4, verse 13, continuing the thought here. Come now, come now, you who say today, or tomorrow, we'll go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. Look at verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, He will live and do this or that. You notice the, distinct, the, the distinct, uh, distinction here, the difference here? The issue is not so much don't make plans, uh, making profits not a bad thing. It's, that's not what, it's not saying that it's a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. But here are individuals who are make, boasting about tomorrow, that, that tomorrow is assured them, making plans for the future and not considering God's plans for them. And so they go into the city and uh, James is challenging them to say, you know, we ought to say if the Lord wills. Now, now, what he's not saying is that at the end of every sentence, you should say, if the Lord wills, that's enough to drive the average person crazy. And he's not saying that. He's just saying we ought to be living in that attitude. God, what would you want me to do? God, what are your plans for me? I'm willing, to, I'm willing to take up the plans you have for me. I'm willing to give up my own personal plans that you have for me. I want you to guide my future. And so that's the, that's the admonition. You remember James talks about a double-minded man? He mentions this individual throughout his letter. The double-minded man does not have heavenly wisdom. We studied that already. Neglects to treat others with courtesy lacks purity of heart before God and, and neglects God in his everyday affairs. This is the last point here in James. The double-minded man neglects to consult God in his or her everyday affairs. And this, I would suggest, is arrogance at its best. The attitude, this attitude was seen in the life of Haman. You remember Haman? Esther chapter 5 and verse 12. Haman was invited by the king and by Esther to come to Esther's place for a meal. And uh, Haman, you know, he's trying to, what's he trying to do to the Jews? He's trying to eliminate them, right? Trying to destroy them. And he's all puffed up and proud and happy that he was invited to, to sit with the queen and the king. It was just the three of them. And then in verse 12, uh, Esther chapter 5, verse 12, he says, Haman's uh, talking and he says, besides, Queen Esther invited me invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared. And tomorrow, I'm again invited by her along with the king. He's assured that tomorrow is perfectly fine. This man has not consulted God in any of his plans. He's seeking to do harm to God's people. Anyone who messes with God's people, they've got to be careful. The story of Haman is an indictment on anyone who speaks ill of God's children. 
because by chapter 7, Haman is hung. Done. But yet here he is boasting about tomorrow. Look at the king invited the queen. Hey, look at me. Done. Because he didn't consult God. In Luke chapter 12, there's a parable that Jesus teaches about a rich fool. It's, it's known as the parable of the rich fool. Poor guy. How about being known after you've lived that you, you are known as the rich fool? And uh, this is what he said in uh, verses 16 to 21. He said, I will do this. I will Remember, he's, he's, he's reached his point. His barns are full. And so what, what am I going to do? He says, this is what I'll do. I'll pull down my barns and build greater. And, <clears throat> and there I will store up all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And someone has Luke chapter 17, verse 26 to 30. Who's got that for us? Okay, Manjeet. Luke 26, and as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. 27, they ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the, blood, and the flood came and destroyed them all. 28, likewise as it was in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. 29. But on, the but on the day that the Lord went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven, and it destroyed them all. 30. Even so will it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Thank you so much. What's the concern here? What's the concern here regarding people in the last days, the attitude of myriads of people in the last days? It's not financial prosperity. We know that as long as that's held secondary to doing God's will. It's not what people can do, eating and drinking and marrying. It's, that's not the issue. It's about boasting about tomorrow, that tomorrow is guaranteed. It's about their attitude about what they do. It's about being sure they'll be around to fulfill their plans without giving consideration to God's, what God's plans are for them. You know, life is uncertain. Tomorrow is not promised. That's why they call today the present, right? It's a gift. It's a gift from God. But we, we don't know what tomorrow will bring. However, God does. And He can do with our lives better than we can do for our own lives. Amen? No doubt about that. And so we don't be, we don't, no one wants to be boasting about the future. Making plans without God. That's what James is, is encouraging here. Look at verse 14 now. We're over on Wednesday's lesson. Verse 14, he says, Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is life? It is even a what? Vapor, mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Let's take a look at Psalm 90, verse 12, and notice, notice the admonition David gives us. So based upon the fact that life is short, it's like a vapor passes through our fingers. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. We need to spend time, David encourages us here. We need to spend time contemplating the shortness of life so that we can learn how to best use the time that we're given here on earth. David says to do what? Number our days so that we might be wise. We might know what to do with the short hours that we're we've been given. What's the purpose of life? Is to live and to glorify our Creator. That's the bottom line. That's the bottom line purpose of life. 
Look at verses 16 and 17 with me as we close up here. But now you boast in your arrogance. There's that word. You boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is what? Evil. It's evil because it's self-sufficient and it fosters presumption, which is akin to the spirit and thinking of Lucifer. And he is evil. It's selfish. But true love doesn't parade itself, is not puffed up, up, doesn't behave rudely, does not seek its own, does it? That's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We are to plan ahead. Yes, we are. We are, are we to go it alone? No, we're not to go it alone. Psalm 16 verse 9 tells us, a man's heart plans his ways, but the Lord directs his step. And so we're told to not boast because boasting is evil. Verse 17, therefore, to him who knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. The Bible defines sin in two ways. Doing what is wrong, that's 1 John 3, 4. Sin is the transgression of the law, specific infractions made against the law of God. And it's also defined as not doing what is right, right here in James chapter 4 and verse 17. The gospel doesn't just call for us to abstain from evil, doesn't call for us to abstain from evil only, but calls for Christians to be doers of that which is good and that which is right. Uh, You've heard of sins of omission and sins of commission, right? Sins of commission are things that we do, specific infractions against God's law, breaking God's law. Sins of omission are refraining from doing the things that are right. You know, a person could hide themselves in a cave in the hopes that they would avoid temptation and and live a victorious life over sin, but while they might be good, their life is really good for nothing, isn't that right? Instead, Jesus calls us to be the salt of the earth, to be the light, the light of the world. Jesus commends the sheep that are on his right hand in Matthew 25 for for the fact that they have lived their faith and their faith has been evidenced in their doing good things for others who are less fortunate. And our lives can't be a continual route of doing good things, can they? We've got to spend time with God. We've got work to do, but... We've got to squeeze into each day as much good as we possibly can and maybe even bring just a little bit of heaven on earth to somebody here and right now. What do you say? Sure. Arrogance. Arrogance is the biggest hindrance in our development as Christians. And uh, the appeal here for us today is to live humbly before the Lord, living, serving, and loving others. Would you join me as we seek by God's grace to do just that each and every day? Sure. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.